Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. Liberty lovers alike share common values, a principle of limited government, a belief in the fundamental equal dignity and rights of all people, and an enduring sense that freedom is not only an effective foundation for society, but a moral one. However, there are times when we can have serious disagreements with real impact, not only on policy, but the movement for freedom itself. In our first part of what we called our great debate, we looked at immigration, and in the second, we discussed intellectual property. Today, we would like, in our third installment, to discuss big tech platforms, things like Facebook and Google and so on. But first, as always, and to make good on my promise, Chris and Cody, what is your favorite word and what is your least favorite word? <laughs> I, I, uh, I gave my preview last week, right? My favorite word is defenestration. It's the greatest word in the English language. Why? Why is that so magnificent? So it defenestration is the act of throwing someone outside out of a window. So <laughs> to defenestrate. And I love the fact that in history, so many people have been thrown out of windows in momentous occasions that English had to come up with a word for it. (laughs) And that's my favorite part. Have you ever looked up the root of the word? Like French, right? Isn't fenêtre like a window in French? Hell if I know. I I I, feel like my Canadian, little bit of my Canadian French roots uh, will, will come will come back and, and help me there. I think I think fenêtre is window in French. You know more than I do. What's your <laughs> least favorite word? Oh, I don't know that I have a least favorite word. Um, that. Oh, I hate the word that. We overuse it in English so much. Like that, like T-H-A-T? T-H-A-T. When I go through and I read, so as you've all figured out by now, I'm a lawyer. Mm-hmm talk about a lot. So I edit colleagues briefs. I read people's briefs and and help. I write op-eds. I help people with those. People overuse the word that so much. And I will go through and delete it. And out of a 8,000 word brief, you can knock off a hundred words that are just that. It is insanely frustrating and overused in writing. That's fair. That's a fair criticism. I, I the word that. that needs to be defenestrated from the English language. That's it, guys. I'm done for the week. You guys enjoy. <laughs> take take 10, right? Christian, what's your favorite word? That is awesome. I mean, hey, I'm going to second what Cody says on the whole use of that and cutting words in case briefs and, and articles. I used to be a managing editor of a news site. And when you edit people's articles, oh, my goodness, definitely you could cut 
a number of that, but I'm going to go more with the concept behind words. Cause I'm not sure how many like super unusual words I know. Um, since I work for the, you know, Republican party at this point, a lot of my focus is messaging. So it's what words stand for and what they represent in people's minds. So I'm going to go with resurrection being my favorite word. In fact, I almost named my daughter a name that means resurrection because I believe it is the ultimate picture of hope. And if you've heard me talk at all on these podcasts, I often bring up hope because I believe it's one of the best things in the world. And my least favorite word in concept has got to be math. Math. And I'm just going to throw that out there. Math is not not my thing. As the chairwoman of the uh, Colorado Party of Republicans, math is going to be your ultimate friend now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is what I have treasurer, great people right? surrounding me to do. Yes, I have great math people all around me. I'm a word person. They are the math people. Mathematicians are your favorite. Math, not so much. There you go. You've there got we it. There you go. You've got it. I, my favorite word is not appropriate to be said on the air. My favorite oh, word is, my favorite word, if I, as soon as I say which letter Right. It could be any letter of the alphabet. As soon as I know, you'll know which one. But my favorite word is a four letter word that cannot be spoken. So I'll take my second favorite uh, word and it's petrichor. Petrichor is the smell that you get from rainfall. Right. So when, when, wow. when the rain hits the ground, it comes up. And the reason I love it, it I mean, I love the smell of rain, but that's not why I like the word. The word petrichor, um, it was it was kind of developed as this idea of, of the blood of the gods, right? That, that, that you get this kind of smell of, of, of the gods bleeding. And that's why it's so, uh, 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 has such a a great aroma. And I just, I think that's just a great origin for a word. Wow. So Stan's got the blood of the gods. I got throwing people out of the window and Christy has resurrection. I feel like we've established (laughs) if people didn't know us already, they, they knew us now. <laughs> I'm down. I'm down for this. Um, yeah, we'll have to ask though. Did you guys like read encyclopedias or dictionaries like all no. the time growing up? Because those are cool words. <laughs> I my, can't say my, I knew either of them. <laughs> my mother is an English teacher specializing in grammar. Um, my dad is a literature teacher and history teacher. So I just, ah, I mean, my, one of my high school graduation gifts was a dictionary that they like, and I there have it. I have a physical ah. dictionary. That's doesn't. It's not a thing for a lot of people anymore. My least I, mine was literally coming just from being a history kid and like reading histories. And I, I'm not kidding. You would be shocked at how many times in history people have been thrown out of windows. It is a monu- monumentous occasion in many uh, countries' heritage. So <laughs> one, one of my favorite like sub passions that I have zero training on is, is, is linguistics. I love like the study of languages, the study of for me. I have a colleague. Um, at the school I teach with, and he is uh, like, he can read Anglo-Saxon fluently. He like, he can pick up the original Beowulf and read it. It's amazing. It's awesome. Um, Yeah. Oh, my least favorite word is swallow. I hate the word swallow. It just, (laughs) it sounds awful. It sounds like you're swallowing something. The bird or the verb? Doesn't matter. The word, the sound of the word is gross to me. I don't like it. <laughs> okay. There is no the, rational what, sense to it. What's the English term for a word that sounds like it? The act. Onomatopoeia, which is my mother's favorite word. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> which is how I know that one. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Wait, what What le- does your favorite word begin with? I can't say that. As soon as I say it, everyone else is going to know. I tried to trap him, Cody. <laughs> yeah, you're, 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 you're not going to trap me, man. Forgot. You're not going to trap me. 
I got you. It's a four-letter word. I'll, I'll give you that. Which doesn't and narrow it down a whole say, lot, but well, and when you you don't want to say on air, one hundred percent, I don't want to say it on air. I swear, I want to have students and parents of students who listening in. <laughs> we'll talk after. Talk after. Don't worry, people. I'll get you the scoop. So, if you wanted to develop a stronger understanding of language, if you wanted to find out your own word or the meaning or the origin of your own word, you'd want to look that up. And now back before, you know, maybe you're older, you might say you have to look it up in an encyclopedia or, a, or an etymology text, right? But now we have a phrase for that. Go Google it. Go figure that out. And we don't even think about what that phrase means. Go Google it. That just means go look it up on the internet. You could be looking up on any uh, uh, information database, but the word Google is specific to a company. In fact, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. We call these big tech companies the five, the group of five, right? And it typically comes down to Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. And sometimes this group, this big tech group shifts and changes, but these big five are often in the news today. And they have a tremendous influence over the market. And that's generally not a big problem, especially if you're a liberty lover. You like it when a company can make things easier for our lives. And by God, Google has made life so much easier for the whole of humanity. Facebook has made it easier to connect with people. Apple with music, Microsoft with productivity, Amazon with purchasing. These are good things. Nevertheless, they do have a tremendous influence over the distribution and access of information. And we spent a whole podcast last time trying to understand do you own information? Do you own ideas? Well, whether you do or you don't, we do know that you can own the access of that information through things like internet platforms. We have a variety of debates on big tech in our society, and some of them are interesting. Are they monopolies who act against the public interest and violate antitrust laws? Do they pay their employees enough or, or, or do they overwork them? However, for our conversation today, we want to focus on a very specific argument, and that is, is there powerful influence over information, the foundation of knowledge itself, detrimental to a free society? And if so, what should be done about it? And if not, what do we say to those who are concerned? As always, we're going to outline our general thoughts, and then we're going to kind of break them apart in comparison. So Christy, as always, would you like to take this on first? Sure thing. So... I agree with you that when we talk about big tech, there's so many interconnected issues. But one thing that I always find amusing on the issue of big tech is that it's one of the few modernly debated issues where you see people on the very far right and the very far left actually finding some agreement. Now, not, not for the same reasons, but you see the far left and the far right and many people in between wanting to put some regulations or restraints on big tech companies and their platforms, often the left is focused on the censor, or sorry, not the censorship, the monopolies they believe it's created, and the right is focused on the censorship. Um, we don't believe free speech grows where opinions in, that are considered to be minority are censored by the people in power. Uh, so you actually will see, though, I believe, some movement on laws concerning big tech because it's not so centered on which side of the aisle you're on. Uh, it's just centering on how we regulate it. That's the question. But I think going to the liberty issues, I'm, I love the concurring opinion that Justice Clarence Thomas recently wrote 
in what most people just refer to as the Trump and Twitter case, but it actually, um, its technical title is Biden v. Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. So unpredictable uh, title of the case for what it involved, but if you just look up the Trump Twitter case and Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion, you'll get into it. His basic argument is that due to the prevalence of big tech companies and how so many messages today are filtered through them, they should be treated like common carriers. Common carriers are public utilities, telecommunications companies. And basically, if you think of a telephone company, it's very easy to understand. Like, does T-Mobile get to regulate what texts you send? If you send um, hate speech, which everyone would disagree with, um, over a you know voice to text, are they going to ban you? No, they don't. They can't. If you, um, you know, call someone on the phone and discuss an offensive issue or promote your viewpoint on on something where you are in the clear minority, can Verizon, you know, pull your contract? No, they can't because they're public uh, telecommunications companies that are covered under the common carrier. There are some good First Amendment exceptions to it. For example, people use their cell phones to share child porn, they get arrested by the FBI because that kind of violence speech is opposed to first to the First Amendment and not protected by the courts. So anyway, Thomas's basic argument is that at this point, big tech companies have risen to the level where they are used for communications similar to telephone companies, similar to public utilities, and therefore to actually preserve everyone's constitutional rights, they should be treated like common carriers. I'll go ahead and stop there, even though it's certainly a very, very layered issue. I think this is really interesting, and we're gonna. I'm gonna hear Cody, and then I'm gonna see if I can build a synthesis out of the two. Um, it's really interesting because you weren't there when Cody and I did our utilities episode, so we <laughs> we had a very clear distinction on what we thought about utilities, at least the internet utility. So it's gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out now that we yeah. can get you back into that discussion, <laughs> but. Uh, I anticipate a lot of fun today. Cody, what do you think? Wild West. Let him go. That's <laughs> all I got. No. Um, so I think that Thomas's concurrence in the Trump Twitter case um, is very interesting because he does go through a few different areas that he kind of rejects before coming to this kind of like Section 230 public uh, accommodation analysis as well. Um, I think it's interesting that in there, he kind of walks through the analysis and kind of presents some potential avenues to Congress, but really doesn't say anything. At least I didn't find that he really said anything incredibly conclusive, but he definitely is leaning in that direction. And I think this is probably one of the places where, um, I would disagree with Thomas. And I think the distinction here, however, is going to be Thomas is arguing from a a place of the current statutory framework in the United States, which he's required to do as a Supreme Court justice and is totally understandable. Um, I admittedly am not a Section 230 expert. I'm not an expert on, you know, the regulation of of public accommodations or of utilities in that sense. Hold on a sec. The mere fact that you mentioned a Section 230 warns that we give our viewers a little bit of understanding what Section 230 is. I only know like that fragment. You might know a little bit. 
And that little bit's bigger than my fragment. So if you got anything on Toother, I we I'd love to hear. And I think Chris, you might have some, some info since you pulled it. You both pulled up Clarence Thomas. I didn't even know there was a case. You two are miles ahead, so you guys got the got the go ahead to to explain this. Yeah, one. like two thirty, just briefly. Is it's called like the Communications Decency Act, the Section two thirty of that act, and it stops it doesn't allow the companies to be liable for what their users post. I mean, that's briefly what it is. It gives them certain protections, even though they're not a government actor. It basically says you can't hold them liable for what users do. So if so, if I'm Facebook and someone posts something that says, hey, let's go kill this person, then Facebook can't be held liable for it. That's the, that idea. the idea. It's more complicated, as I'm sure Cody can get into. But yeah, that's the idea. I think the big nuance, and somebody's going to jump in in our comments at some point and explain that we're completely wrong. But I think the big <laughs> key is that it really only applies to entities that don't um, don't regulate the speech. So for example, like your cell phone carrier, like Christy's talking about, they don't regulate the conversations that are going on between people that are talking on their cell phones. Therefore, they can't is, is be held liable for what's going on between them. The wishy-washy this comes in is when you start editorializing and this is where like comment sections came up so if you don't monitor or um, police the comment section then you can't be held liable for what's said in the comment section it's like hey you're we're not going to get you in trouble for what this guy said so long as you don't touch what everyone else says but as soon as you start editorializing then you're taking a position and that means if you let something happen on your platform then you're endorsing it and now you're liable is that is that the idea of yeah. And I think, I think there are, and I'm not a 230 expert either, but I think there are exceptions where websites, like you still even can be held liable if it rises to a certain level of crime, because you do also have some responsibility to put some moderation and remove like super illegal activity. I mean, it's either illegal or not, it's not really super illegal, but, um, but yes, there's also provisions for not being held liable at large for every terrible thing that's posted. I don't mean to get too deep in the weeds of statutory law, but let me just clarify one thing. When you say, it, you know, if if something rises to a certain level, then they do have liability. But if I'm understanding this right, can T-Mobile or Verizon, you know, telephone carriers, are they liable for someone who coordinates a murder over their phone lines? No, but that actually, I don't think that that applies for 230, right? 230 is specifically dealing with like internet ISP issues. Well, see, I don't know. It, I, it, does 230 make a distinction between telecommunication, internet, telecommunication, telephone? Uh, yes. I, we're getting to the weeds here. We're getting, we're getting the weeds here. And if that does make a distinction, then great. If not, then I think that's warrants for debate. But I'd already derailed you cody please finish your your thoughts on regulating no if anything you've helped me and further prove that i'm not a section 230 expert obviously (laughs) me neither so uh um and to be honest the reason so this is outside of my practice area so i'm not legally required to know it it's not something that i do for work um and and in that vein honestly it's something that i don't i'm not really too concerned with because for me it's an underlying principle issue for me this issue goes down to a couple very basic things. One, I don't care how big they are. Twitter, Facebook, Google are all private companies. They are p- private 
it, they're not government run, they're not government owned, neither nor should they be. Um, and therefore, they're engaged in private business actions. And so when you decide that you are using Facebook, or you are using Twitter, or you are using Google, you are entering into a contract with a private entity. And so you're saying, Twitter, yes, I agree to your contract, therefore you let me on your platform. And this is something that came up right after the big advent of social media, what people started to realize is, if you're not paying for it, that's because you're not the customer, you're the commodity. And so we know that we're the commodity now, at least if everybody should at this point know that on social media, you're, you're the commodity. You are a bulk of data that they are marketing to, advertising to, and that they're using for other collection purposes. So that's what you're giving them. When you're on Facebook, you're agreeing, hey, you get to collect information about me and I get to keep up with my aunt in Poughkeepsie. Like that's the, <laughs> that's the deal, guys. That's where we're at here. And so, this, I mean, the, it, this this almost plays into again the the overlap between this and last episode is going to be insane. I think because I think because in, in if I if I'm I don't follow Europe because I don't like the continent, but you, the European Union basically declared that you are the owner of your data. And so anything that Facebook or Google collects about you cannot be used by them without your explicit consent. Not it has to be an opt in, not an opt out, right? Is that the, yeah. because in the United States we don't have any law like that in California so, does. California does, yeah. which means probably the rest of the country will follow soon after. But the point being is the in America you don't own your data. No one owns the data. Until it's been collected, then whoever collected the data owns. Is that no? See, that's see, and, no? and see. They, I think that shifts the problem. So you own everything about yourself. You own your data. You own your your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. But you're trading that for a good. So when you have location services enabled on your phone, you're trading your location data to Apple or to Google for the express purpose of getting more easy, easier updates and traffic alerts and Google Maps, all those things. You own that. You own your location data just by the virtue of it's where you are when you're being there, but you're also giving the company the ability to observe it. Look, if you don't want to, to give Facebook or Google your data, go buy a flip phone and delete all your social media accounts and you're free. It, there's nothing they can do to you. Google can't come in and decide that they're going to like, I mean, they literally cannot place a GPS tracker on you that there's Supreme court case law that says that they cannot track you. That's a phys physical intrusion. You willingly put that phone in your pocket. You willingly get on the Twitter and Facebook platforms. And so to me, this is a freedom of contract issue. You as the user have the obligation to learn what you're contracting away and what you're contracting for. You, you, when you go through that terms and conditions and no one reads it, it's a big joke. You could read it if you wanted to. And so that's my, my big kind of base level um, principled problem. My other uh, more pragmatic problem is Nothing good ever happens when you shove the government in the middle of these things. It's not going to get better. 
it's only going to get worse. I've written something down here that I want to bring up later, but I think we're at a natural point where I think Chrissy can reply because Chrissy, you correct me if I'm wrong. You, you generally have a sense that at this point in agreement with Clarence Thomas, that it's right. You know, it is private contract. We've freely given over. And if you don't want to sell your contract, Cody's right. Delete social media, delete all this, get a flip on blah, blah, blah. And yet, in the modern economy, if you don't have social media, if you don't have a smartphone, then you are lagging behind. You're at an inherently unfair disadvantage. Should we be regulating them like utilities? Should we be treating them like electricity and water and things like that? Or is Cody right? I mean, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, in principle, I don't agree with any. I don't disagree with any of the principles Cody lays out as far as like you know rights to contract and that you could go read those terms and conditions and you should actively know what you're agreeing to and take on both those rights and privileges and responsibilities when you sign a contract i do think the problem that arises though is when we mix principles with reality and in reality how many people are really going to go read those terms and conditions and have that much time to read it about literally everything in our lives at this point every website has a cookies policy Every single social media platform wants you to sign that you've read their privacy policy along with two or three other policies, their data policy too. Um, every And then every phone and every internet service and every electricity utility and gas and water that you pay for, like everything has a contract and a contract, in my opinion, that's designed to protect the company over the individual. And I'm personally very centered on individual rights. And so do people have really the ability to participate equally in a society when huge corporations have taken the power to basically put their thumb on your life and say, you can't participate equally in society unless you honestly not even just read it, but agree to it. It's not like there's another option. Um, I mean, unless, yeah, you want to live completely off the grid uh, because that's in the same way. I do view that it'd be very similar to saying to someone hey, if your electricity company has a policy that you don't like, well, just don't have electricity. Light candles, have flashlights. I mean, that's a possibility. And it is. You could do that. No one's stopping you. Um, You can stay alive that way, like for the most part. So that's the only small difference I see is occasionally without electricity, you can't survive. No, no. I I, I think, you know, Cody, I I don't think it's any surprise that Cody and I generally agree on most issues. And I think we do on this one. But (laughs) Cody, Chrissy's brought up something that, I didn't even thought about it, and I think it's brilliant. You talk about this right to contract and free contract, and I totally agree with you. But let's be frank here. You, you too, as lawyers, know very well that these contracts are so mundane, so deep, only the most dense of, of law reading could be able to give you an understanding of this, and that it is not just unfair it is downright unethical to expect regular consumers to navigate these contracts. This isn't freedom of contract. This is deception in the form of small text. I, I, I feel like this is a valid concern, that this isn't really a contract. This is These are terms imposed, and you don't even understand the terms because it's, law, it's legal speak. It's legal jargon. I don't know what it means. I, I have a lot of issues with that. Um, first... This is assuming that corporations, which are just a group of individuals that have got together to transaction business, don't have rights. Because why should they not be able to draft a contract that protects themselves the best? Second, you don't have to to use the platform. I mean, you can live a a perfectly 
find life and society without Facebook. You can still access the internet. You can still use other internet service providers. You don't have to use Google. There are options out there available to people. Just because it's less convenient doesn't mean that something needs to be regulated as if it's some form of government entity. So I, I don't but, think that we should degrade corporations like that just because it's a big, scary corporation. Also, Stanton, why don't you start a social media company that has a one-page terms and conditions sheet that's readable to people? Do you think I, I think I because use using Amazon's AWS requires that I hand over certain data AWS. Don't use AWS. Who would you like me to use? Well, There's other companies. AWS has the largest market share, but it's not the only. Which means it's though. the only commercially viable option. Right. No, and see, that's exactly what I think too, is like, yes, there's always other options. Again, candles and flashlights. I mean, they're an alternative to electricity, but no one should expect a person in a modern society to have equal access to life and to in, in pursue happiness. There we go. Use a constitutional phrase. Um, when you are limited to options that are really not viable. And when you can't use Google, you can't use Apple, you can't use Amazon, you can't use Twitter, you can't use Facebook. I mean, you're pretty much living as a societal outcast and your ability to get your message out there is limited. I mean, sure, you technically have choices, but they are not equal choices. I, on whose back? Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide when you're too big? Who gets to decide when there's not an equal choice? Who gets to decide when the market doesn't get to respond? And why is that government? Why can't communities band together? Well, because well. that's not, so that is not an appropriate role of government. It is not, government does not exist to cut some people's rights off from other people's rights. Corporations are individuals. It is an amalgamation of individuals that have gotten together to transact in business. Those individuals in the form of that corporation have a right to provide a service based on the terms that they see fit. If the government says you don't get to impose the terms on the contract that you want, that means the government is controlling your labor. Let's boil this down to one-on-one. -on -one. Should the government be able to step in and tell Jack that he has to make the cake? So I think here's the difference. The difference is not just government choosing a side of a contract. I think it's literally when you take a much, much more powerful, it is a collection of individuals, a corporation. They are more powerful than a single individual out there for the most part. So you take the powerful versus the powerless, I mean, to go to extremes here. And then you say, generally speaking, should government get involved? Of course not. Not I don't think they should get involved in contracts. I think generally their place is outside the private contract and people and individual and corporations agreements. However, when the corporation or any collection of individuals, any group, you could even forget that we're talking about corporations, not about a group of people. Whenever they become so powerful that they can stomp all over an individual's constitutional rights and use the excuse of, but we're not the government. So you don't have your constitutional rights anymore. What constitutional right are they us. stomping on? Oh, a ton of free speech and first no. amendment rights. Doesn't apply to a corporation. I, I know. I'm but that, saying but that's this is her problem. point. This is her point. That, right. That these companies say, we're not the government, so the First Amendment doesn't apply. I think she's not talking about the First Amendment as a law. I think she's talking about the First Amendment as a principle of a free society. Correct. And I think if corporations grow so big that they can basically erase your ability to express your First Amendment rights or any other rights, rights equal protection of the 14th, anything you want to bring into a variety of scenarios, that is when, because it is government's duty 
to protect the individual's constitutional rights and the corporations are preventing you from exercising those rights or any collective group of individuals is prohibiting the minority. Basically, they're making it almost impossible for the minority to express their rights. Like that's the whole point of a, of a republic, in, in my opinion, is to make sure that the majority does not drown out or the powerful do not drown out the powerless and the minority. Uh, the difference here is, and I will maintain, you have a freedom of contracting. You have the right to tell Google no, just because you want to be able to tweet out or be an IG influencer doesn't mean that you get to be an IG influencer if you're doing something that Instagram thinks violates their terms of service. The other thing is, is imposing government regulation is short-sighted. What it does is it gets us into the place of where we are with public utilities, where you end up with government granted monopolies because they're the only ones that can function in the government regulatory space. And as a result, there's no competition in the marketplace that incentivizes creativity or incentivizes competition. So what you end up with is a choice between electricity or candles, not a choice between Shell or Exxon. Right. And, and I, so, yeah. And, and, and I'll, and I'll pick back off Cody and Chrissy. This is, this is kind of the essence of the utility episode is that, you know, because government has monopolized electricity, it really is a choice between the government's shoddy electric system versus having options, right? Mm -hmm. So the the right the, the the deprivation of electricity isn't because of private corporations' competition between mm -hmm. them, but because of government, right? right. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense, and I think. I absolutely think you guys are right that like when government regulations go so far that they then become the monopoly, the very thing they were supposed to stop and break up, then that's an even worse disaster because certainly free individuals can run a company better than a government. So I entirely agree with you guys on that one. I guess I just think there's so many areas of the law that need reform, period. And I think how the government handles monopolies and how the government becomes the monopoly is another area that needs reform. And that doesn't have to be the answer of how we fix big tech, though, in my opinion. I think we should bring out the eraser, not the pen in a lot of these scenarios. I think we should be getting rid of protections, getting rid of these things and not adding to them. I when think it comes the to big tech, what do you mean by that? So I don't think that we should lump big tech in to be regulated as if it were a public utility or as if it were a public accommodation. I think we need to look at what ways government is encouraging these sorts of monopolies to exist already um, through, through additional regulation that forces out market competitors and erase those to better incentivize market competition. The problem is the government wants its hands in everything. The more power, bigger it gets, the better off government is, right? You give a mouse a cookie, he wants a glass of milk. <laughs> exactly. It's the Leviathan problem. Right. And so this is just an, the next area. And I mean, this is always the, the joke I have as I kind of talk with people about government and whatnot is name something that government does well. Because I can't think of anything. Military. And Oh, no. We, have we had this conversation? I don't know. Have we? So, no, I don't think so. Oh, okay. So if you look at uh, any data points, the United States military is actually fiscally ho horribly irresponsible. Um, if your consideration is based on extermination of an enemy, cost per kill for the United States military versus a mercenary force is significantly higher. It's much cheaper to hire out, which is why military often does. 
Um, so the government's not even good at killing people. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no, because because military is a business. A, it's a, a transportation business. It's not a um, right. It's logistics. It's logistics. And so it's not great at logistics, but because there's so many considerations and because the military is so big in each of its considerations, aside from a kind of um, what Christy would probably point to, I'm going to speak as her of kind of this, (laughs) the spirit of the United States military force, but anything measurable, uh, the private sector does more efficiently. So, I mean, so, so you, you, you talk about no, anything government touches just turns to anti-gold, to, to, to just crap, right? Um, I wrote this down earlier because I think it's really interesting. Every year, I have my AP government students do a moot court. They have to do a Supreme Court simulation. And I always use a current case before the court right now with one that the court has not yet decided. So this year, they're doing um, Malahonoi uh, School District VBL which is really interesting. I think, I'll, and I'll bring it back up here. But a couple of years ago, they did um, Carpenter v. U.S. And um, this is a good one. I think it's relevant to our discussion immediately. So Cody, they have made a contract in which they own your data now, right? You have freely agreed to hand over your data. They own it. It's theirs. Boom. Let's say we, let's say Chris and I are both on your side there. This gets problematic when we bring up the third party doctrine. For people who don't understand, the third-party doctrine, which was at the heart of Carpenter v. U.S., is basically this. Whenever the government wants to know about your location, your whereabouts, and the nature of your property, they have to usually get a warrant, a search warrant. However, the third-party doctrine essentially goes like this. Mr. Government says, hey, Verizon, yeah, do you have information on this person? We sure do. Do you think we could look at it? Yeah, why not? I don't need a warrant. I don't want to get in trouble. So here, go ahead, Mr. Government. Now the government has that data without a warrant. And Verizon or Google, whoever, is free to give this information because, Cody, they own it. You freely consented to doing that. Do I as an individual not have any protection at all, Fourth Amendment-wise or privacy-wise, from the government interfering in the looking of my data? Which, yes, I have sold to Google, but to Google, not to the government. How do you, how do we deal with this problem? If you sell me your car and somebody comes and wants to buy your car from me, can I sell it to them? Sure. Boom. That's it. But the government, but the government and data and information is a whole different ballgame substantially than just a car selling to third person buyers. See that. And that's where I I would disagree because you entered into a contract with a private individual, you gave them a good, and they gave you a good in return. So you're giving the NSA free reign over our data simply by the fact that they, if Congress can appropriate them billions of dollars to buy information from Google, you've just given NSA free reign over our information. They, you've given them a backdoor. Yeah. 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 I think I think there's a major, I'm going to agree with you, Stanton, because... I just think the government is a completely different entity. You can't compare the government to an individual because of the control they have over our lives. All right, Cody, here, here's my, here's my background. Cause I think Chris, Chris and I are really passionate about this. I, I feel passionate. Chrissy, maybe, maybe this might be, maybe this can help. I feel like this is a compromise <laughs> situation because now Chrissy, you want a little bit tighter control. Cody, you want right. any more? I want to see if I can bridge this gap here. Cody, you're absolutely right. 
<laughs> Cody Google, has, <laughs> Google has the right to sell this information to whoever they want because it's theirs. Here's my claim. If the government doesn't have the authority to buy land, they shouldn't have the authority to buy data. Does that sound right? That's where I was going to go next. Yeah. Okay, all right. Oh, there we go. Chrissy, how does that sound? Can, is this more acceptable to you? Or I, you? Any way to get the government out of just having an easy, accessible right to people's data without their real consent, I am... I agree. <laughs> so this this solves the government privacy problem, right? Yeah. This so, is so that's where I was going to go next. So you you headed off exactly what I was thinking. So the car example is right is to keep it between private, and then the next step is can the government come and buy the car? Okay. And the answer is only if it's a proper role of government. Only if they have the appropriate power and authority, because government doesn't have rights like Google does. Mm -hmm. Government doesn't have rights like we do. Government has powers and powers and that are prohibited. Exactly. And so only if the government has an appropriate power can it then acquire that property. And that's where you get into the appropriate limitations based on the principle there. Okay. All right. So we, we've all kind of come to this nice, happy place of government privacy, but we still haven't figured, the, figured out just without government. The, the idea, and this goes back to the, the essence of a free society requires open speech and open discussion. We have we have two rights, not uh, maybe not two rights. We have two principles in contract with one in contrast with one another: the freedom to contract and the freedom to express. Both essential to a free, flourishing society. And it seems like one is mm, rubbing up against the other. Well, and so I have two two examples of where the examples that a lot of people that think like this, follow this, we'll, we'll have heard of before. And Stanton, as the economics professor, will absolutely know dealing with monopolies. And I'm going to talk about our famous Standard Oil and U.S. Steel, right? So these are the two famous monopolies in the United States, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, they were both treated about the same, but they actually both had different outcomes, which was the same outcome for different reasons. So Standard Oil actually gets broken up under the Sherman Act, right, as a monopoly. So basically the government passes a law that says that you can't control the entire market and use deceptive means to keep other people out of it, so on and so forth, right? That's a fair summation of the Sherman Act. So the federal government initiates litigation against Standard Oil, finds that it's a monopoly and actually forcibly breaks it up. And Standard Oil has to sell off to a bunch of other oil companies. But Rockefeller's the famous founder and president of Standard Oil, right? He owned shares in all the other oil companies. So he sold off shares to companies that he owned in. So the government stepped in and engaged in years-long litigation, forced the breakup of a monopoly, and all it did was diversify Rockefeller's holdings. And at the end of the day, Standard Oil still dropped massively in its shares because of the advent of new technologies. And so government stepping in to regulate the industry didn't help anything. And inevitably, when the market was responding, the market fixed it. And the exact opposite happens in U.S. Steel. So U.S. Steel, government steps in and tries to break it up as a monopoly and U.S. Steel wins. And then because the U.S. Steel is not paying attention to the market, even after they won, they dove from like a 70% market share to like 10% because they weren't paying attention to innovation in the market. And so 
the, yes, these are not regulating speech issues. These are regulating monopoly issues, which is another way that people have looked at these, these platforms. But even in our short history, we know what happens is when government steps in, it doesn't make it better. It's only once the market steps in to make it better. So instead of forcing the government into this Twitter debacle or this social media debacle and then delaying market response, because that's all this will do. All this is going to do is force small companies out because they can't comply with the regulations. It's going to incentivize Twitter and Facebook to have their lobbyists draft the regulations to force the small companies out. And you're going to have armies of Twitter lawyers that are experts in 230 plus analysis and parlors not going to be able to keep up. Even though if you look at the market right now, right, parlor started off as a nothingness and then gained a little bit of traction once people were concerned with Twitter censorship, exploded once Trump was kicked off the platform, the Twitter, and then exploded even more after it had to find a new hosting service after AWS. And so it's the market that's responded there. It's not because government stepped in to regulate Twitter. Parler has a bigger market share because people are upset with Twitter, which is how we should control these issues. We shouldn't let government come in and step in. We as a society, as a community, should disincentivize bad behavior. Yeah, and I, I like a lot of what you just said, Cody, and certainly on the monopolies, I think those are great illustrations. And and I think that's why it is, it tends to be more the left that wants to see big tech regulated that focuses on the monopoly aspect. And I think it tends to be more Republicans, conservatives, the right that say, no, no, it's really an expression and speech issue that we're more concerned about. And the only thing I'd say as far as like dis, disincentivizing bad behavior, which I agree, the market can do a ton with that. It often is also very, very slow, not always, but often when the market does it on issues of speech, which are a little separate, as you mentioned, from like actual business interests, speech can be a little different. Speech is so fluid, it's so constant. And so for an actual change to happen, I think sometimes it truly disintensifies bad behavior. The government has to step in. And the way I actually like one of the suggestions that Clarence Thomas had in his case that I think is a reasonable regulation that's not really overstepping the bounds of government, but would still make a significant difference. And it's short, so I'll read it. He just says, Congress has given digital platforms immunity from certain types of suits with respect to constant to, to content they distribute, but it has not imposed corresponding responsibilities like non-discrimination that would matter here. And so basically this, the suggestion behind that statement is if Congress is going to, government is going to continue to give big tech companies like you know protection from liability and lawsuits. They should pair it with a responsibility that disincentivizes censorship behavior. Say, okay, if you're going to be immune to these lawsuits, you also need to not engage in discrimination. Similar policies have been extended to like housing, which is a whole other debate. But the government does impose things like that. Or here's my other thought, and I, I you know you both have awesome thoughts coming up. My last thought is. Here's an alternative. Take away the government protection. Don't say anything about non-discrimination, but um, the companies have to disclose their biases. People have to know when they go to the website, what side that company is on. Or like Facebook decided in the last election, they weren't going to run any political ads. They weren't going to allow anyone to buy them. Then fine, do that and announce your policy, be out, be up front. We are on this side of issues. Then fine, no government regulation at all is necessary. But when they can hide behind government protection, 
but have no corresponding responsibilities, I, I find that to be a problem. So Cody, do you bring out your pen and require that they be non-discriminatory because they are protected from suits or do you get rid of the protection from suits? Which Do you bring out your pen or eraser here? Um, I bring out my eraser. And here's why, because- So these platforms could be sued or could be held liable for what's on their content. No, that's uh, not oh, what I said. Okay, I said they're not it. immune from suit. So uh, there are controlling principles of law that would already um, immunize, functionally immunize a lot of these issues because there's third-party actor do- doctrines. There's, right, like- I mean, there are plenty of doctrines that exist in our law today that if somebody made a threat on Twitter and it wasn't immediately deleted, nobody could hold Twitter liable for the publishing of that threat, right? Because you don't need Section 230 to, to resolve that issue in the common law under even just straight tort law. So I don't, I think I bring out the eraser here. I think the problem is on the other side, you're just one, you're further involving government, right? You're, oh, we'll protect you for this, but we're going to have to get a little bit of quid pro quo here. Uh, that was a really weird accent for that. I'm sorry, guys. I don't know why. I'm doing <laughs> it was <that>. great. <laughs> um, and it it's this idea that government can specially protect a certain group while also exacting a certain price out of a certain group. I I just don't think that involving government in that issue is, is appropriate. I think that um, the causal chain in basic tort liability is going to be able to resolve 95% of these problems. And for the 5% of the problems that it can't resolve and you get into a dispute between individuals, then that's what courts are there for. Now, these immunization statutes were passed as like kind of like fiscal responsibility acts in a sense, right? It's kind of a a problem of the system. Basically, they're trying to keep 1 million people from individually suing these platforms where they would have to defend all of these suits. Um, So you just can't do it. The problem is you you still could file the lawsuit. It'll just immediately get kicked out of under 230 which is the exact same as immediately filing the lawsuit and it getting kicked under third party action under, you know, so it, I don't see that it makes all that much difference. Um, it's more of government trying to provide a functional safeguard. It's a redundancy baked into law itself. Yeah. And it, I guess there are some, probably some protections against potentially uh, poor uh, judicial opinions and can protect against litigation on that front. So I might have to think through that a little bit more and what that actually looks like at the end of the day. Do you um, want these platforms to be immunized? I know what, I know you know what the law is. Do you want them to be? I don't know. And and so my first thought is government bad. So sure. no. But government also exists to protect individuals' rights from to protect individual rights. Companies or individuals. Not constitutional rights, individual rights from the mob. And so companies are individuals. So if there is mob action that is violating the rights of the individuals that are amalgamated under the form of a corporation or company, then that might be the appropriate role of government to stop the mob. What about when the corporations become the mob against the individuals? Then, Or rather it, foster a mob. It, yes. 
That's fair. No, it, it could be the government's role to to stop them from violating individuals' rights. I just don't agree that Twitter is violating an, indiv- an individual's rights because they're not stopping you from speaking. They're stopping you from speaking on their platform that they created, that they invested in, that they own. They what don't, if, so so if here's the public square thing. problem. What okay. if all, actually, this is not a small thing to ask, but I'll ask it anyway. What if all the cell phone companies and all the phone companies got together and banned the same person, similar to how, and I realize his name is a sticking point, but Trump was banned by pretty much every single platform out there all at once, collectively. Would would there be no role to protect someone who was committing no crime, but was banned by every single phone company out there? And so, yeah, technically they can go walk and deliver a letter, but their communications are like highly limited. Smells like a cartel. (laughs) Is that a Rico suit at that point? Um, No, probably not. Um, I think you have a stronger case there because I think if you can show collusive effort to close off the entirety of the space, I think you have a lot stronger case. Um, Is it not a market boycott that people have demonstrated a desire not to do business with these people if they don't do this? Is this not market boycotting? This isn't cartelism. This is the market. And it it kind of is too, right? I mean, there's a lot of, there was a social pressure amongst the tech companies to stop the, the, you know, bad man from speaking. And so orange man, bad. Orange man, bad. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a while. Um, <laughs> been a few months. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know that I, I would completely agree there. Cause here's the, here's the problem, right? And this is kind of the ephemeral problem that we got into with IP and that's you aren't cutting off the public square. You've created a square that you're keeping people out of. And so there are in our modern society, an infinite number of public squares. There is no longer a limit on the amount of public squares. So it's different if you're in a small town in 1790 and you quite literally prohibit somebody from walking into the town square to speak to other individuals, right? That's a that's a problem. If your community government comes in and says, no, we don't like what he has to say, he has to stay out because that is quite literally the only public square and it's the only one in existence and it's the only one that can be in existence at that time. But now we have infinite public squares. I mean, you have Facebook, sure, we talk about Facebook, we talk about Twitter, we talk about Instagram, but there's a billion of them. There's Discord, there's Reddit, there's Pinterest, there's Parlor. We're just going to get how far can Cody go down the social media spectrum here, but how, how, how you, are you going to, going? <laughs> there's 4chan, there's 8chan. If you think Reddit's bad, which is really not just a bunch of Don't dummies making us. memes, 4chan's awful. Don't get H-chan us is the, into 4chan, dude. We 8chan don't is the level you get before you hit like black market internet. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, so that's the thing, right? Is, is just because all of the, you know, 80% of the private companies in existence got together and prohibited George from being on their platform doesn't mean that he can't speak or that he doesn't have the ability to speak or convey his message. Is it less efficient? Sure, but government isn't the proper role of government isn't to provide for efficiencies. It's to to protect the base human individual right. And so this is where I have this kind of pushy problem back and forth. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I agree with efficiency. I think my question just lies in, but at what point are you not just making it harder for someone to communicate their message, but literally impossible? And at yeah. what point does something rise to really the equivalent of what a public square was back in the day in the 1700s? Because sure, you can talk over here, but you're really not going to reach the same people that you'd reach if you had the freedom to speak over here. And, and I mean, that's a question that has to be debated and figured out. I'm not convinced there's one answer to when does something get elevated this, to the level of a public this, square. This feels like one of those problems. And Christy, you said something that, that, that brought it out. This feels like one of those problems where it, and I know, and, and this feels, this feels meh, me saying this. So you, bear with me as I work out the phrase here. This feels like one of those instances where the government's involvement is going to disrupt the essence of freedom, primarily in the freedom of contract. That said, if government is involved and it has to be bound by the First Amendment, then it fosters an even greater amount of at least intellectual freedom. Am I in the right ball, ballpark here? Because I feel like this is one where because the government's not involved, you have limited, you have greater censorship voluntarily, right? And we're all about voluntary action. It's voluntary censorship. But at the same time, imposing government obligations in the contract, which is bad, fosters greater speech because of the First Amendment. Now, granted, the First Amendment isn't here. This is all a moot point. But this is where I think this is really tricky, right? The freedom of contract versus the freedom of intellectual debate intellectual discussion, not even intellectual discussion, just discussion pure, purely. If you um, provide disadvantaged individuals with a free education, then they would have better access to society and thus you would foster more debate. Touche, I see your point. That's the problem. So this is where... And, and so that's why, you know, I joke that pragmatism is the way of the devil is yeah. because <laughs> is because every time we we stray from principle and we try to serve the master of convenience, we, you know, betray the underlying principle down the road. And there are so many of these scenarios where that becomes the problem. I, I truly just think getting government involved in this situation is going to oust the competition and is going to make us worse off in the long run, as opposed to us as a society trying to figure out how to deal with the tech boom, because it's really new. This is a brand new problem that we're having because this is brand new technology that we have and we're gonna screw it up at the beginning and it's gonna take us some time until we can figure it out as a society and when government steps in to make those decisions for us it's uniformly bad and i, I just don't see the benefit of taking that risk even in this scenario i i think we've i think we've run this issue uh, to the point where we're, we're at we're at this you know it feels like there's a couple of principles at, at battle here and you know like i said at the beginning i think cody and i are generally on the on, on one side here i hate that google and facebook and all of them do what they do but i gotta stick up for them even when i hate it that's kind of the whole point where christy i think also has a, a pretty strong case that this is intellectually dishonest that this is fundamentally bad for society when we 
when, when these companies do this. And I don't know if I would disagree. Um, I mean, the essence of this discussion is, is information and how it should be handled. I think it's difficult for us Liberty lovers because unlike real property, like the real um, public square, we know who can own. We know how it can be owned. We know who can get access to it and not. Um, and information isn't owned by anyone, or maybe ideas are, but information isn't. I mean, that's kind of last week's debate. But um, but you can definitely own the process of accessing information, right? And that and that creates a question of monopoly or quasi-monopoly. You creates this potential problem, um, and how we manage it is is a I think it's going to be a debate that goes on for a lot longer. And in the grand scheme of history, we're still in the very, very, very early stages of, of the internet and how that's going to work out. I mean, hell, it took the telephone at least 100 years to develop itself into a real viable technology that's almost universally everywhere. So I have nothing else to add. I think we've run this pretty much. I don't even know how to, how to summarize uh, what we've done. I think we've done such a good job here. Granted, I like I, to do my I, own horn, but you know. <laughs> no, I think it's great. And I think that, you know, I like these episodes where we kind of we're not necessarily here for to to give you guys the answer. I mean, that's not why we're doing this. We're we're doing this so that we can help expose everybody to these different liberty perspectives. And, you know, I think that it's important that we come across these topics that we disagree on and we we talk about them through this principled practical pragmatic approach so that when you're having these conversations with your friends when you're talking about the episode because i know that all of you guys that are listening are, are chatting about this over lunch the next day um that you know hopefully we we inspire some debate maybe you might pick up on something that christy said and that's that's your rock and you're running with it or you know stanton comes up with a great point and, and that's your new kind of talking point but really just kind of in in hopefully inspiring people to think these things through and, and think them through to the base level. So I really enjoy these episodes and, and this one was particularly fun. I think Christy and I were able to kind of go back and forth on some really tough topics that I don't even necessarily have an answer to right now. And I, and I probably won't for the next 20 years, maybe. No, I really think debate on these issues is really healthy. I mean, when we can have a debate, it's something our society has lost having a healthy debate among friends where we agree on so much and disagree on some, but I think that can lead to better conclusions. And Cody, I'm sure some people will listen and pick up your arguments too and want to run with that one. And my final point is like, as much as I wish that one or both of you were on my side, like if I have to pick one of you guys or Clarence Thomas, I mean, in this case, I'll go with him. <laughs> I mean, I think I might go with Thomas too. Oh man. <laughs> That's so fair. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm really glad you both had a great time with these. How about a fourth? How about a fourth? I could be persuaded. Yeah. Hey. So folks, we had initially planned on just three kind of debates, but I'm thinking there's a fourth that's a bacon here. Um, and this fourth topic is arguably going to be the one that hits a nerve just a little bit deeper than the rest of them, right? You know, immigration might evoke some emotion of patriotism. Intellectual property might evoke the sense of fairness. Uh, big tech, this sense of maybe anger. How about this question for next time? Do parents own their children? I like that question. And I think... 
I think we're, I think our, our audience is going to like it just as much next week. Um, so do you guys have a shout out before I close this out? Now that I've just kind of landed that bomb there in front of you. I, I think you're ending it great. Like I can't think of anything better I could say. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's save them. Let's, we'll save the shout outs for next time. So we'll, we'll do that next time. Do parents own their children? How about you think about that while we think about it? And we'll come to you in a couple of weeks and we'll have a good chat about it. We know what we're going to talk about next time. We know it's self-evident and it's almost 100% forgotten. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram for now at SCF underscore pod as well as Facebook. And you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time.